Well, turn with me in your copy of God's Word, if you have it, to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. And while you're finding that, let me just go ahead and share with you something that we're starting next week. And then we'll talk about it a little bit more at the end of the service. Next week, we're starting a new series that goes along with the movie that is coming Steve, did you do something to my mic last week? All righty. Test, test. All right. We're going to start all over on that, okay? And the reason we're starting all over is because the West Campus is with us this morning, and so we don't want them to have to endure all of that. And so if you have your Bible with me, turn with me to James chapter 5. And while you're looking that up, let me just share with you, next week we're beginning a new series that goes along with the movie that is coming out on Friday, Left Behind. And we're calling the series left behind. And for about six weeks, we're going to be looking at what the Bible teaches about end times. And this is an absolute incredible opportunity for you to invite your unchurched friends with you, family, people that that do not go to church, that do not know Jesus. Because I've got to tell you, what I'm convinced of is this. Everyone Regardless of whether they go to church or not, regardless of whether they're Christian or not, everyone is curious at least about the end times. What's going to happen, when it's going to happen, all of those things. And so we've got some invite cards, we've got some other things we want you to do. And so let me encourage you to take advantage of this opportunity. Well, I heard a story a while back about a man who encountered a bit of trouble while he was flying his small airplane, and, and the man um, radioed the control tower, and he said, pilot to control power t- tower, pilot to control power tower, I've got a problem. I'm 300 miles from the airport, I'm 600 feet above the ground, I am descending rapidly, and I'm out of fuel, what should I do? And the control tower radioed back and said, control tower to pilot, control tower to pilot, repeat after me, our Father, which art in heaven, and continue the prayer. Here's what I've discovered. For many people today, and I would dare say for most people today, that's the extent of their prayer life. Whenever they find themselves in a situation that they cannot handle, that they cannot control, that they cannot do anything about, they will cry out to God in desperation. And yet, the Bible teaches that prayer is the most important, the most productive, the most powerful thing that you and I can ever spend our time doing as Christians. Because it is through prayer that you and I approach the throne room of God. And understand, we not only enter into God's presence and stand before the throne, as God's children, we are able to climb up on the king's lap and share with him our innermost desires. 
We can share with him our wants and our dreams and our intentions and everything that is on our heart. We can share with him. We have the ability to do that as God's children. Now this morning as we gather together, there are two truths that I really want you to grasp that aren't on your note sheet. So I want you to write these down. Because we may not even share these again, but understand these two truths are vital if you're going to understand the power of prayer. Here's the first one. When we begin to experience the presence of God in prayer, we will discover the power of God in our lives and in our situation. Uh, Let me say that again. When we begin to discover the presence of God in prayer... That's when we will begin to discover the power of God in our life and in the situations we face in life. And here's the second truth you need to understand. God works in response to our prayers. God works in response to our prayers. God does not work in response to our needs. If God worked in response to our needs, there would be no needs. Amen? God doesn't work in response to our needs. God works in response to our prayers. Over and over again, in God's Word, we see God doing incredible things in and through His people as they prayed. I want you to listen to what some of the the great Christians that I I believe are great Christians have said about prayer. Ian Bounds said this, He said, prayer can do anything God can do. The pity is that we do not believe as we ought and we do not put it to the test. Prayer can do anything God can do. The pity is we do not believe that and we do not put it to the test. John Wesley said this, God will do nothing but in answer to prayer. God will do nothing but in answer to prayer. Samuel Chadwick said, The one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. If the devil can keep you from doing anything, the one thing that he's going to attempt to keep you from doing is praying. J. Hudson Taylor said, Prayer power has never been tried to its full capacity. If we want to see mighty wonders of divine power and grace wrought in the place of weakness, failure, and disappointment, Let us answer God's standing challenge. Call unto me, and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things that thou knowest not. Evan Roberts said, Prayer based on God's word is the only weapon that is effective against Satan. Prayer based on God's word is the only weapon that is effective against Satan. And then Mark Batterson who wrote a book I I recently, uh, about a month ago, finished reading, Prayer Circles, he said this, In the grand scheme of God's story, there is a footnote behind every headline. In the grand scheme of God's story, there is a footnote behind every headline, and that footnote is prayer. In other words, when we see a headline of God doing something in the world, then we know that underneath that is a footnote, and that footnote is prayer has been involved in this. So why don't we pray? I I mean, why is it that we really don't pray? And I think there are several possible reasons. First of all, we get too busy. 
I mean, we, we wake up early, we have to get ready for work, we go to work, we get home late, and we have to spend time with the family, and we have to unwind a little bit, and then we're tired, and it's time to go to bed, and once we go to bed, we go to sleep, and then we have to get up, and we start all over again, and we just don't have time for prayer. We're, we're too busy. Second of all, I think some people don't believe. They really don't believe that prayer really matters, that God's going to do what God's going to do. Gay, sirrah, sirrah, whatever will be, will be. The future's not ours to see. I mean, God's going to do what God's going to do, so we really don't believe that prayer changes anything. Third, I think we think that though God may answer other people's prayers, God really don't have time to answer our prayers. I, I mean, with all of the problems in the world, I mean, with the, with the wars and the rumors of wars all around the place, with, with hunger and disease and, and pestilence, why does God need to be bothered by little old me and, and my prayers? And so we think that, well, my prayers aren't, aren't high enough on the importance ladder, and, and so we just don't pray. And then finally, I, I think here's the final reason, we're just not desperate enough. We haven't hit rock bottom. We feel like we can still handle the situation on our own. We can control the problems. We can can do it on our own. And so we don't pray to God. But understand, prayer is not just some privilege for the spiritual elite. Prayer is a privilege that each and every one of us as God's children have. The word prayer occurs over 500 times in God's Word. And when we take the other phrases like ask and and seek, those kind of things, we discover that prayer is a major theme throughout God's Word. And when we come to the book of James, we discover again prayer is an important theme. Now, let me give you a little bit of background. James is the half-brother of Jesus, and and he did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the Savior, until Jesus appeared to him after the resurrection. And when Jesus appeared to him after the resurrection, he became a believer. And he became a strong believer to the point that he became the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. But if you know anything about church history, you've read the book of Acts, you know that a persecution arose in Jerusalem by the Jews that scattered the Christians throughout the nations at that time. And so James' congregation, James' church, the people that James was called to pastor were now scattered all around. And so James felt like he needed to write them a letter to encourage them because they were living in a world that was not only different from what the Bible taught we as Christians should live like, they were living in a world that was opposed to them. And he wanted to give them some advice, some counsel, some wisdom on how they could live effective, productive lives as believers. And one of the subjects that he dealt with was prayer. As a matter of fact, as he is wrapping up the book, he concludes with the subject of prayer. But what's amazing is, he also begins this book with the subject of prayer. In Acts chapter 1, verse 5, he says, if anyone lack wisdom, let him ask God. That's what? That's prayer. 
In verse 6 of chapter 1, he tells us to ask in faith because if we don't have faith, if we doubt, we won't get the request that we ask. So he's teaching us about prayer. In chapter 4, he says, you don't have because you don't ask. He's telling us about prayer. And then he says this in chapter 4. He says, and the problem is when you do ask, you ask for selfish reasons. And when you ask with the wrong motivation, God's not going to answer. And, and he's talking about prayer. But then as we get to the, this passage, the one I want us to focus on, these six verses, in James 5, verse 13, he says this. I want you to follow along with me. This is an incredible passage. He says, is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him, anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crops. Now, notice how James begins these six verses. He says, are you in trouble? Then pray. Are you happy? Pray. Are you sick? Pray. Have you sinned or do you know someone else who has sinned? Pray. And so what is James saying? James is saying whatever your situation may be, whatever you may find yourself in the midst of, the answer to your problem is prayer. Did you get that? Prayer is the answer to every problem we will face in life. And then as he gets to the verse, end of verse 16, he says this. He says, the prayers of the righteous are powerful and effective. Now, practically every word in that phrase is important. First, he tells us that it is the righteous who have powerful and effective prayers. Now, understand biblically, there are two kinds of righteousness that are vile to you and I as followers of Jesus Christ. The first is positional righteousness. We are righteous because we are found in Christ. Listen to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. He says, God made him, and the him is Jesus, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, Paul is saying when we humbly come to Jesus, admitting, confessing our sin, turning in faith to him, he not only saves us, but as he saves us, he places the righteousness of Christ into our account. You and I are spiritually bankrupt. We have no power in and of ourselves to pay our spiritual debt. But Jesus is righteous. And because Jesus is righteous, he has the power to pay off our spiritual debt. 
And when Jesus died on the cross, he took his righteousness, placed it in our account. And so when our debt is due, when the sin debt is due, and we have to pay the bill, and God looks in our bank account, our spiritual bank account, he does not see that we are bankrupt, we are destitute. No, he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he says, your debt is paid in full. That's positional righteousness. You and I are righteous because by faith we have trusted Jesus to be our Savior. But then the Bible teaches that there is also a practical righteousness that is very important. In 1 John 3 verse 7, John deals with this. He says, dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. In other words... John is saying, what I'm about to tell you is very important. And then he says this, he who does what is right is righteous. Did you get that? Don't let anyone lead you astray in this regard. When you do what is right, you are righteous. Now we are first of all made righteous because of what Jesus Christ did for us. But then John tells us there is also a practical righteousness that comes into our life when Jesus comes to live in us, when his Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us. And when his Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us, we then begin to live a righteous life. We do what is right. We seek to obey what Jesus said. And James is telling us that it is the righteous... It is the righteous who have effective prayers. And so what James is saying is this. Hear me. First of all, if my prayers are going to be effective, I have to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I have to humble myself, acknowledge my sin, and accept what he did on the cross as the payment for my sin. I will never have effective prayers apart from that. And then he says, if I want to have effective prayers, I must be living a righteous life. David talked about this. He said, when I have iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Isaiah talked about this. He said, your sin separates you from God so that God will not hear you. This is the practical righteousness. And so I must, first of all, have a relationship with God, positional righteousness, and I must be prayed up, confessed up, seeking to live for the Lord, practical righteousness, if I want to have effective prayers. But then the next word that is important here is that word power. And I believe the NIV puts that word in the wrong place, to be honest with you. Most translations put it this way. Most translations say, the powerful prayers of a righteous person are very effective. The powerful prayers of a righteous person are very effective. And that word powerful in the Greek is energeo, which is the word we get our word energy from. It's speaking of power, but more than power, it's talking about intensity of power. And so what James is saying is this. He is saying that the intensely powerful prayers of righteous people are effective. Now, what does that mean when we say intensely powerful? Well, I believe this is the kind of prayer where you call out to God and you don't let go until God answers. 
This is the kind of prayer where, where it's gut-wrenching, heart-breaking prayer. This is the kind of praying where, where your heart is broken and your, your eyes are shedding tears and, and, and you, you almost cannot control yourself. This is the kind of prayer that, that I believe that, that we read a picture of in Genesis where Jacob is wrestling with God. Do you remember that story? And the Bible tells us that Jacob wrestled with God all night long. And in the morning, God said, okay, let me go. And Jacob said, I'll not let you go until you bless me. Remember that? Jacob wrestled with God all night long, intense praying. And so let me ask you a question. When was the last time you had intense prayers? When was the last time you prayed until you heard from God? I mean, what we do is is we pray in the kiddie pool. And God wants us to pray out in the deep waters. God wants us to pray through and God wants us to pray long, but it's not just the length of our prayer, it's the intensity of our prayer. And so he says, the powerful, effective Prayers of righteous people or the powerful, intense prayers of righteous people are very effective. And that word effective literally means much force. And so he says when a righteous person prays powerfully, intensely, they've got a lot of force to them. And then he gives us an example. And the example he gives us is of Elijah. Now understand, Elijah is on the Mount Rushmore of Old Testament prophets. I mean, Elijah's not just an ordinary prophet. No, he is on the Mount Rushmore of prophets. And yet, James said something about Elijah who was on the Mount Rushmore of prophets. He said, Elijah was a man just like us. In other words, even though He was on the Mount Rushmore of prophets, even though he was one of the greats in the Old Testament, one of the great men of God. James said, I want you to know, Elijah's no different than you. Elijah's a man just like you. He had his ups. He had his downs. He wasn't perfect. He was a man just like you. And yet he prayed and it did not rain for three and a half years. And then he prayed and it rained. And yet, he was a man just like you. Now, here's the point. If we pray, if we pray like they prayed in the Bible, we may find ourselves experiencing what they experienced in the Bible. Did you get that? If we pray like they prayed in the Bible, we may find ourselves experiencing what they experienced in the Bible. And that doesn't mean that God's going to duplicate Pentecost for us if we pray like they did in the upper room because Pentecost was a one-time experience. But let me tell you what. If we pray like they prayed, God may do something in us and through us like a Pentecost today if we will pray like that. You see, the Bible teaches us over and over that there is power in prayer. Let me give you two New Testament examples. Jesus said this. He said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who finds 
Or he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks the door will be open. Ask, and it will be given. James 4.2, uh, the Living Bible says it this way. The reason you don't have what you want is that you don't ask God. So how can we pray like Elijah? Well, I want you to turn with me, if you have a Bible, to the Old Testament book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 17, and I want us to look at several stories over about a three and a half year period that give us a snapshot of Elijah's life and the power that his life produced because of his prayers. Now, when you read the Old Testament story of Elijah's life, you don't see prayer covering every page. And yet James lets us know that it was prayer that was behind the power in Elijah's life. And so let's walk through this snapshot. It begins with God telling Elijah to go to King Ahab and tell him that it's not going to rain again until Elijah says to God, let it rain. Now to understand, Elijah was the most wicked king in Israel's history. If you looked up wicked king in the dictionary, it would have Elijah's picture by it. And if you wanted to look up a wicked queen, it would have his wife's picture, Jezebel. They were wicked people. And so Elijah went before Ahab and he said to him, I'm not going to let it rain for three and a half years. And then Elijah left and he went into the wilderness and God said, I'm going to provide for you. And God began to provide for him. He provided food through ravens. He provided water from a, book, a brook. After a period of time, the brook dried up. And God said, I want you to go to Zarephath. And I've already told a widow there in Zarephath to provide for you. And so hey, um, um, Elijah went to Zarephath. And there he found a widow who had a, had a son. And, and he approached the widow and said, fix me some bread. And the woman said, I don't have any bread, but I, I have just enough flour. I have just enough oil to make enough bread for my son and I to have one more small meal. And, and then we have nothing else and, and we're going to die. And, and Ahab said, you're not going to go die. Just make the bread. God will provide. And so she went and she made the bread. She used her on flour. She used her oil and it didn't use up. And she made bread. And then she made more bread. And then she made more bread. And she made more bread. And for the entire period of this drought, God provided food for this widow, for her son, and for Elijah from this never-ending jar and jug of flour and oil. God did an incredible miracle. Well, during this period... The widow's son died. And when Elijah heard about it, he went and he took the son and he prayed over the son. He literally fell down over the son and begged God. And you know what God did? God brought the son back to life. And then after a period of time, God said, okay, it's time for it to rain. I want you to go and approach Ahab. So 
Elijah found Obadiah, who was a prophet who worked for Ahab, and said, I want to meet Ahab. And so he met Ahab and said, I want you to gather all of the people, the prophets of Baal, the prophets of Asherah on Mount Carmel, and we're going to see who God really is. And so the people gathered at Mount Carmel, and the prophets of Baal, the prophets of Asherah gathered, and, and, and Elijah said, we're going to have this contest. And, and I want you to cut up a bull, you prophets of Baal and Asherah, and, and, and put some wood below it, and you're going to call down fire from heaven from your gods. And, and, and then I'm going to cut up my bull, and I'm going to put wood under it, and I'm going to call down fire, and, and the God who answers by fire is the real God. And, and so the prophets of Baal and Asherah started first. There were 950 of them, and there was one Elijah. And so they started calling to their God, gods, and they started dancing before their gods, and then they started cutting themselves. By the way, this is an aside. You know, there's a lot of that going on today. It's a sad thing because understand cutting is always connected with demons. It always is. This is what they were doing. They were cutting themselves for their false gods to get their attention. But nothing happened. They began to cry out and and nothing happened. No matter what they did, fire did not come down from heaven. Why? Well, because Baal is a false god. Asherah is a false goddess. And so finally Elijah said, okay, now it's my turn. But here to make it interesting, this is what we're going to do. I want you to bring buckets of water, and I want you to pour these buckets of water on my wood. And then I want you to bring some more buckets of water and pour it on my wood. And then I want you to bring some more buckets of water and pour it on my wood. And they poured so much water on the wood that was under the cut-up bull that the water was just flowing into a ditch around the wood. And then Elijah called up to heaven and said, God, Show that you are the one true God to these people. Fire came down from heaven, consumed the sacrifice. The people fell on their face before God. And Elijah said, get up, kill all the prophets of Baal and Asherah. They did. And then Elijah went back on the top of Mount Carmel. And get this, he prayed. He prayed that God would provide rain. And then he turned to his servant and he said, look toward the sea. And see if you see anything. And the servant looked and said, there's nothing there. Elijah prayed again and said, look and see if there's anything there. The servant said, there's nothing there. Elijah prayed again and again and again. Seven times Elijah prayed, God, make it rain. Finally, on the seventh time, the seventh time, the servant said, I I see a little cloud. The size of a hand rising up from the sea. And Elijah said, go tell Ahab, he told his servant, go tell Ahab, you better get in your chariot and book it home because it's about to rain so hard that it's going to stop you from traveling. And sure enough, it started raining so hard that it just drenched the land. The power of prayer. Now, there are a lot of things that we can learn from this story, but I want to give you four truths that I think are vital if you want to begin to pray like Elijah. 
Here's the first thing. You've got to learn to pray boldly. You've got to pray boldly. And so let me ask you a question. When was the last time you prayed boldly before God? When was the last time you prayed for something so big, so gigantic, so enormous, that there was absolutely, positively no way that it could happen unless God did it? That's a bold prayer. You see, most of our prayers are easy prayers. And whether it is we don't want to look foolish or whether it is we don't want God to look foolish, we pray little prayers, we pray general prayers so that God's off the hook if our prayers don't come through. And yet when we read God's word, we discover that the great men of God praying bold, enormous, gigantic prayers that were very specific It's not going to rain again until I call up to heaven and ask God to make it rain. You're going to have enough oil and enough flour to feed us until this drought ends. God, raise up her son. God, bring fire down from heaven. Bold prayers. Big prayers, specific prayers. I I read someone said this, one bold prayer can accomplish more than a thousand well-laid plans. One bold prayer can accomplish more than a thousand well-laid plans. Now understand, that doesn't mean we shouldn't plan. That doesn't mean we shouldn't prepare. That doesn't mean we shouldn't work. But what it means is more important than our planning and our preparation and our work is our prayers. Because prayer can accomplish far more than you and I can accomplish. So what is it that you really need in your life? What dream do you have that you believe is a God-given dream? And if you really believe that it is a God-given dream then pray it boldly before God. And by the way, hear my heart. I believe boldness means that it is going to be public. Now, why is that? Because if I keep what I am praying for to myself and it doesn't happen, then nobody knows. If it does happen, who's going to believe me? But if I go to someone and I go, I really do believe God has said that that he is going to do this. And and I am praying this until I see God move. We are praying boldly because we're trusting God. So pray boldly. Second thing, pray expectantly. Now when I say pray expectantly, that means with faith. John Bizzano said, faith is not believing God can. Faith is believing God will. We need to pray believing not just that God can answer our prayers, but that God will answer our prayers. We've got to quit praying safe prayers. Faith is the willingness to look foolish. Faith is is trusting God enough to build an ark in the middle of the desert. Faith is, is going down into that valley, charging a Goliath, believing that God is going to give you victory. Faith is is what 
three Hebrew young men did when they said, our God is able to deliver us, and they were willing to walk into that fiery furnace. Faith is stepping out of the boat saying, I'm going to walk on water because God called me to. You see, that's faith. Faith is risky. Faith is the willingness to to look foolish. You see, Elijah didn't just pray against the prophets of Baal. He challenged them publicly to a showdown. He He didn't just tell the widow to pray. He told her to bake a loaf of bread with a very little bit of of, of flour and oil that she had. He he didn't just um, say, Lord, part the Jordan River. He took his cloak off, hit the Jordan with his cloak, and the river parted. Bold prayer, expectant prayer. You see, each miracle in the Bible is set up by a concrete act of faith. When we pray like Elijah, maybe, just maybe, we'll begin to see some miracles like Elijah. Too often we let our how get in the way of what God wants us to do. God puts something on our heart a dream, a burden on our heart. And all of a sudden, we begin to ask the questions, how is this ever going to happen? And in the midst of trying to answer the hows, we never experience the what God wants to do. We don't need to worry about the hows if God's put it on our heart. We just need to step out with expectant faith, trusting God. Pray boldly, pray expectantly. The third thing, pray unselfishly. And this answers the question of why are we praying? And I'm afraid if we're honest, most of us would have to admit that most of our prayers have as their main objective our personal comfort rather than God's glory. And understand, I believe with all my heart there are times that God answers prayers for our comfort. For our joy. I believe that, but 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 hear me. When our when the primary amount of our prayers are for those reasons, rather than the glory of God, we've somehow missed out what prayer is really all about. You see, God is not some genie in a bottle and your wish is his command. No, God's command better be your wish. It's not about, God, here's what I want you to do for me. Do it now. No, it's all about finding out what is it that God wants and then trusting Him enough to boldly proclaim it and trust Him to do it. The secret to prayer is finding out what God wants. Listen to what it says in 1 Kings 18, verse 37. Here's here's what Elijah says. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me. Why? So these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. What was the reason that Elijah prayed everything he did? For the glory of God. Understand. This life is not about comfort. Though I think we all want to be comfortable. We are here to bring glory to God. 
And if as we do that, we are able to live lives of comfort, that's good. But if it brings glory to God in calling us to places of, of discomfort, that's good too. So pray unselfishly. And, and then finally, pray persistently. Don't give up. Seven times Elijah prayed. What would have happened if, if Elijah would have given up after four times or five times or six times? What would have happened? Now, we can argue that and, and we can debate that, but here's what I believe. I believe that if he wouldn't have prayed through, the miracle wouldn't have come through. I believe it's because Elijah continued to pray that we see the miracle coming through. Do you remember the story of Daniel and Daniel when he prayed? And the Bible says for 21 days he prayed and nothing happened. And then an angel appeared to him. And the angel said, 21 days ago I, I began to come to answer your prayer, but, but I was held up by the prince of Persia. Remember, remember that story in the Bible? What would have happened if Daniel would have quit praying before the 21 days? He may have never gotten the answer that he got and received the vision that he received from God. We've got to pray persistently. Listen to what it says in Hebrews 5 verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. That's the kind of prayers we need. Not cute words, not easy formulas, but we need prayers that, that cause us to stay up all night praying. We need prayers that, that cause our hearts to sob before the throne of God. We need gut-wrenching prayers where we don't even know what to say. And we have to trust the Spirit of God to even communicate what it is we're trying to say. When's the last time that you prayed with that kind of burden, with, with that kind of intensity? Those early disciples, when they were in that upper room, what were they doing before Pentecost? They were praying intensely. Every time we see God do something incredible, someone, somewhere is before the throne of God praying and praying and praying and refusing to give up, refusing to quit until they see come to pass what they believe that God has laid on their heart. What about you? I told you the story before of George Mueller who was a great man of prayer who prayed for over 50 years for certain people to be saved. One of those was saved at his funeral. Another one was saved several months after his funeral. He had been praying for 50 years. That's intense praying. That's persistent praying. And what would happen if we begin to pray like that? What would happen if we as the people of God began to pray like that? Here's what I know. The Bible says God is not willing that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. What would happen if you and I 
really begin to pray passionately, boldly, expectantly, persistently for revival in our land? What would happen if we begin to pray that way for people to be saved, people that we know, people that we love, people that we care about? What would happen if we begin to pray that God's name would be glorified again in our nation like perhaps it was at times in the past? What would happen if we begin to pray that way? Well, here's what I know. We'll never know till we pray. So what about it? I'm up for a prayer experiment. I'm up to say, God, I've read your word. See the power of prayer. And I acknowledge that I haven't been praying that way. And yet I want to. And I'm going to. I want to see you work. Will you do that? Will you join me in asking God to do what only God can do? Bow your head with me. With your head bowed, with your eyes closed. Let's go to the throne. Father God, I can't speak for anyone else here but but myself. I have to ask your forgiveness. I know in my head power prayer. And I pray. Father, I do not pray boldly like I should. I don't pray expectantly in faith, stepping out of the water, into the water like I should. Sometimes I pray selfishly. Father, I hardly ever pray intensely. Forgive me. There's a world that desperately needs you. And I'm convinced that prayer is the catalyst that will usher in what you want to do. Oh, Lord God, make us people of prayer, I pray.